that is the big question in social movements of do we promote, say, veganism or do we encourage people to buy free-range eggs or, or more likely do we encourage people to sign a petition opposing the seal club in Canada, for example. And there's something which I call in my thesis a little effort paradigm, which is basically the less you ask people to do, the more people will do it. And I guess the more <laughs> the more you ask of people, the less people will do that. So I think, yeah, that is definitely a barrier to uh, vegan activism. And I think it definitely goes a long way to explain why we do definitely get vegan activism at the grassroots, but the larger organisations are generally more about pointing the finger at what other people and often other countries are doing rather than actually encouraging people to make changes to their own consumption. It's time to draw up your battle plans, assemble your team and ask your dad if you can borrow his bolt cutters. This is your practical guide to starting the movements that change the world. I'm Rich Brophy and you're listening to How to Start a Riot. What's up, Riot Squad? Welcome to the show. I trust you've been finding value in these interviews I've been doing. You're bloody better. Uh, I've actually been kind of blown away because I meet all kinds of movement makers and activists and advocates um, all throughout this work. And I'm always struck by the gravity of their passion and commitment to the cause. And it's weird because as you meet more and more people like this, that pull to do something about the issue stays really strong. Um, I was hoping it would subside, but um, right now I'm doing everything I can not to quit my job, cash in my chips and try and help solve every single problem in the world. Um, and that's kind of why today is an interesting interview because my guest has kind of instead just committing fully to the focal cause that he's got, uh, has taken a step back as well, looked at the bigger picture and started to identify the different structures and strategies being used by organisations everywhere. Nick Pendergast is a lecturer in sociology and anthropology at the University of Melbourne. He's a doctor of sociology, so I should be calling him a Dr Pendergast, but he's also a doyen of social movements and a pretty good book guy to boot. Uh, today, Nick is going to talk us through the subtleties and the strategies of activist movements and give us some great ways to decide on, I guess, a fit-for-purpose approach by really taking a step back and reanalyzing the landscape and thinking about how we want to make change. Um, so lean in and listen up because this is going to be a ripper. Nick, welcome to the show. Great to be part of it. Mate, super stoked to have you in because you are clearly a very smart cookie. I've seen <laughs> some uh, big creds and just discovered that you have done 280 more podcasts on social movements than I have. <laughs> 230, so, yeah. Oh yeah so <laughs> hopefully we can uh, condense that wisdom into uh, one really snappy podcast. I'll do my best. Nick, do you want to just start by telling us a little bit about yourself? Sure, yeah. I guess I um, grew up a fairly apathetic teenager, really into sport and that kind of thing. And then uh, what changed for me was actually punk rock music. I really got into bands like uh, Bad Religion, No Effects, these kind of punk rock bands who were talking about uh, political issues. The Iraq war was going on at the time. So I kind of went from being a fairly apathetic kind of person, not really engaged with politics, I guess having fairly like liberal views, I guess, but not really at all engaged with social movements or what was going on in the world or anything like that. Um, and started listening to this punk music and they were talking about rock against George Bush just to age myself there, the sort of the early 2000s and protesting the Iraq war and all this kind of stuff. And I, I just, yeah, went from that sort of 
apathy to actually getting really interested in social movements and going to protests and reading Noam Chomsky and all, all this kind of stuff just from listening to this punk rock music I'd hear you know that Noam Chomsky name being dropped in their No Effect song for example and I'd go out and read Noam Chomsky and <laughs> yeah. Howard Zinn and those kind of things so that was kind of my starting point of like punk rock music that was political and then the, them sort of mentioning names and and to organizations etc and sort of going from there and so I, I yeah I was uh, doing a town planning degree at the time actually I was mainly finished that and then I took an elective in sociology at the same time I was getting really interested in political issues environmental issues all this kind of stuff so I dropped out of the town planning degree I've taken elective sociology went down the sociology road and I guess around that time, a little bit after I got interested in all those other issues, I also got interested in animal rights issues and started to do a lot of animal rights activism. And I was yeah, going down the sociology road, really loving sociology. And I was doing a PhD on something completely different. I was doing it on TV organizations, which didn't make that much sense because I didn't even watch that much TV or anything like that. I wasn't necessarily passionate about it. And then I was just speaking to a friend about all this animal rights activism I was doing and all these questions I was thinking about. And then I also mentioned I'm doing a PhD and something completely different and then I read a book on sociology and how it relates to animal rights and also the friend was like well, why don't you do like your academic work on that and I kind of brought those two worlds together of animal rights and activism and that and actually brought that into my PhD thesis. And how did you find that when these two worlds collided and it went from I guess a clear-cut separation mm. to all in the same thing? Yeah, it's an interesting one because I, I think there is this sort of idea around like objectivity in, in academic work, for example, that we have to sort of have to be totally uninterested in the topics we study, which I think is a bit flawed from the start because obviously what we choose to research, at least in most cases, wasn't the case for me originally, but I guess we're generally going to research things that we're interested in. And if we're interested, we probably have some kind of views about them. So I guess I, I come from um, an approach called critical animal studies and there's sort of uh, parallels with other things like critical race studies and other things where it's like you're not just interested in studying these ideas just philosophically but you're actually interested in trying to bring about change on this issue so in critical animal studies where generally animal activists will actually have an interest in changing things for animals rather than just sort of having this sort of vague academic interest and I think that we can uh, yeah I think we can provide valuable academic work while also having a strong opinion on this issue and I think whatever issue we, we've uh, we're studying we've always got an opinion on it but I think we can still provide valuable academic work now today we're going to talk we're going to use animal activism as our kind of spine or some key examples that's what i'm anticipating mm -hmm. and um is it i'm curious are the fundamentals within animal activism uh transferable to all movements I think there are a lot of the same things. So a lot of the questions that I was asking myself as an activist, which I ended up moving into my PhD research, which again, in terms of linking activism and academia, I think rather than that activism being a barrier to my academic work, I found it really helped with it. Because if I was sort of looking at this from the outside, it would be like, who are the key organizations? What are the key debates going on? Those kind of things. And like, I was right in the middle of all these debates. I knew sort of where the movement was at, what kind of discussions were being asked, those kind of things. So yeah, it was definitely something I was uh, very much aware of uh, as an activist. And yeah, I guess as a looking into the, all these kind of things in, in my research, I found it, it definitely like really, really helped me know, like navigate the field in terms of that, that kind of research. And I, I guess from an academic standpoint, I was able to 
uh, I guess, like stand back from the issues a little bit. Obviously, still while having an opinion on all these issues and that developing as I did my research and all that kind of thing. But it allowed me to take a step back and and see some issues that I maybe wouldn't have seen if I was just purely engaged in the movement itself as an activist. I'm always surprised by how much of our issues or friction come back to you know, simple human relationships and ways of communicating and that kind of thing. I think when you're inside that world, all of a sudden you realise that the biggest thing holding this movement back or this change back maybe not might not be policy it might be two big personalities in the same space yeah exactly so yeah i think that is a yeah getting back to your original question about like the parallels from different social movements i think animal activists do have these different factions of more rod- radical factions versus more moderate and the sort of the pushback against the different organizations and as you say there's so much going on there's a lot of philosophical discussions but i guess we all bring our own baggage to social movements as well so i guess some of the debates sort of might be framed in ideology but they might be about ego or they might be about someone's having a bad time at the moment and that might sort of come through in, in you know, debates and infighting and that kind of thing within social movements. So, yeah, I think there's philosophical stuff going on, but there's yeah all kinds of, as you say, personal things. There's uh, economic and financial considerations in non-profit organisations, which I think are another important part of the mix as well. But, yeah, there's so much, yeah, I think when we have these ideological debates, there's often so much else going on around that. And it's often hard when you're, I suppose maybe you don't get an organisational psychologist to come in and consult in a, within an organisational social movement as you would in a big corporation who would say, well, these are the key problems. You guys need to trust each other more. It's yeah. just two people going head to head. Yeah, exactly. And I, I think obviously social media feeds into that where it, it is very easy to spend a lot of time, um, yeah, having these long debates online about tactics. And I, I do personally think that that can be, uh, it can be a useful thing. I think it is a really a matter of, um, yeah, like reflecting as a movement where we're going. So I recently, um, I didn't end up speaking I was unwell, but I've spoken to it before, Animal Activist Forum. So it's a yearly event where animal activists come together. And I think it can be quite good to have these sort of debates and discussions and kind of reflect where are we going as a movement? What we could we be doing better? But there's sort of a fine line between that and just sort of like, you know, putting down other organizations and just infighting. It's like, it's, it's such a fine line, but I think it's something that we should try and try and do sort of in, in, a, in a respectful way as possible within social movements. Uh, Look, I want to talk to you today about, I suppose, the different directions that a movement can take in terms of, uh, I suppose, how it it tries to drive change at a really Mm. fundamental way. Um, Do you want to start by giving us, I guess, your definition of a social movement? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess a social movement is where um, a group of people have a shared cause, a, a shared issue they're trying to make change on. Um, and I guess what we'll get into is that within that, there's often all kinds of differences. So again, if we take the animal movement, for example, there's a shared concern there to make a difference for animals, to make some you know, advance the cause of animals in some way or another. But within that, there's all kinds of debates and disagreements in terms of like, how far do we want to go for animals? How will we achieve that, those kind of debates? And again, that is typical of all kinds of social movement, like environmental movement. Everyone wants to make some sort of positive change for the environment. But what exactly does that entail? How do we get there is where we kind of get these factions and debates and disagreements within social movements. I think there can be like one shared social movement, but also a lot of debates and disagreements within that too. And often people talk about the power of 
the vision or the North Star as a way to align these different groups. But I suppose when it gets down to that taking action point, mm-hmm. that's when we actually start to see those fractions of difference in perspective really blow out. And yeah. That's when heads clash and factions form and splinter groups emerge, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, and I think the the animal, like yeah, in the animal movement, there there are definitely um, differences in terms of some groups have radically different views on what they'd like as their ideal end goal. So I'm thinking maybe RSPCA, who want you know animals to be slaughtered more humanely and bigger cages. Like that's not a tactical thing that's their end goal that's what they want compared to groups like animal liberation victoria for example is a more radical group who want to see these industries abolished altogether Um, but even those who have that more radical um yeah mindset of actually abolishing these industries so empty cages for animals rather than bigger cages for example there's so much debate about how do we get to that position and also while the cages aren't empty is it worth fighting for bigger cages even though we don't support that philosophically so yeah i think there there are sometimes philosophical differences but i think much more common is these tactical differences all right now i'm a little bit concerned that i'm sitting down with an academic and we're going to get a lot of solutions that or a lot of answers that are like, well, it could go either way. <laughs> Hopefully I can pin you down on a couple of things. Yep. But let's start by talking about that, right? The revolution versus reform mm-hmm. as kind of two. Because I suppose what we see and hear in a lot of movements is there's a tried and tested path. You know, we want to assemble a group of people, get them to protest, lay down our demands at the feet of politicians get them to change the policy and the whole world changes. But there's a lot of different ways that we can actually incite change. So do you want to talk about that reform versus revolution? Yeah, sure. Yeah, so I I guess maybe if we sort of start off in the... Um, yeah, so, so we'll start off in the animal context and then I'll go elsewhere after that. But in, in the animal context, I guess there's the idea of uh, do we advocate for say free range eggs rather than encouraging people not to eat eggs at all as like a as like a reforming step that might improve the treatment for animals. And so that is one thing on the one side, it could, I guess I'm doing the both sides here thing, which you said, but that's cool. That's cool. <laughs> okay. There's uh, no black and white. In the yeah. World, yeah. So. I guess, you know, the, the argument for that is that we could lead to improvements for animals, even though they are still being you know, killed and used in these industries. Um, on the flip side though, there's this idea that once we had the reform, we might, not challenge the practice as itself. So I guess rather than people challenging eating eggs, once they have the free range, they kind of feel the problems over now and we're doing a better thing and we feel better about ourselves for, um, yeah, for eating animal products in the first place. So that's kind of debate in the animal movement. To put it in another context, um, something I've uh, co-written articles on um, around animals, but also indigenous rights, which is what my um, colleague, Teresa Petray, her research is on, um, talking about constitutional recognition. So that would be an example of a reform within Indigenous rights. So it's sort of it's sort of accepting the Australian state, sort of accepting the uh, colonial, um, yeah, I guess like the, the colonial story and the colonial institutions as they are almost, but it just slightly tweaking it to incorporate a, a yeah, recognition of Indigenous people. And that has widespread support uh, amongst both the Labor and the Liberal Party here in Australia. So it's very much, it's sort of within dominant attitudes and within, it's very achievable in, in a political context. Uh, in in contrast, I guess a more radical message might be going for a treaty which is actually more fundamentally challenging like the 
um, yeah, the colonial beginnings of this country and those kind of things. The fact that we have to sign a treaty rather than more token recognition. And that is uh, something that's been discussed here in Victoria, but I'd say on a national scale has much less support from non-Indigenous politicians, for example, as well. So it's a more fund- fundamental um, challenge, but it's, though the, I guess the downside is that they're harder to achieve. Okay, so we've got these two very different approaches, right? One is a little bit more pragmatic, the other one is a little bit more absolute. Uh, is there any grey space or um, alternative paths or do I have to pick from these two if I'm trying to enact change on a social scale? Yeah, well, there, there is a, a like a third yeah third option, which I'll get to in a moment. But just on, on those two, I, I guess one thing I'd say is that I think whether we support reforms or not, um, I think it's always a matter of like encouraging people to go further. So if we have a small change of always trying to push the bar further. So an example of that going back to Teresa Petray again, who is a colleague of mine who I've written articles with, her article on social media is a bit the same. So for example, if you share a meme on social media, for example, that's much more likely to get shared, liked, etc., than a 5,000-word article written by me, for example. So you know, you're not asking people to do too much, so more people will like it, more people will engage with it. Uh, um, but what her approach is, is not to say don't share a meme, but always encourage people to do more than that. So it's like, okay, you've looked at this meme, you've liked this picture, but if you'd like to know more, here's an article, for example. So this idea of, of encouraging people to do little things while also encouraging people to do more, while also accepting the more you ask people to do, the less will actually do that. So I, I guess, yeah, not rejecting these little changes, but if you are advocating little change, always trying to set that bar further, encourage people to get more engaged in the issue, more active in, in that social movement. Where does that stand then compared to, say, brand awareness, you know? Like mm. McDonald's will stamp their golden arches on mm. everything they can without ever telling you to buy a Big Mac. They'll mm. wait for the opportunity to buy you a Big Mac. So... Surely by sharing a meme and reducing the um, barriers to engagement, Mm -hmm. we could actually do more for our movement in the long run rather than trying to get everyone who shares the meme to also write a letter to a politician or something. Yeah, I, I guess the, the idea that if we ask people to do more, people don't have to do that. So again, people might just like the thing or share the thing and not go further. So it's, yeah, it's not necessarily saying like, don't do those little actions, but encouraging people to do more while also accepting many won't. So I guess they're, therefore you're capturing both markets, I guess here's kind of economic terms of you know, you, you know, those who just want to share a meme, you, you've got them as well, like just by encouraging them to also phone a politician, you don't necessarily look lose that group it's more about yeah reaching that smaller group who may be happy to be more engaged in that issue i've often um i work as an innovation consultant and helping people see the bigger picture of what we're trying to achieve when we're in the depths of customer research and customers hate everything we do yeah is one of the um that's one of the golden skills right because if people can remember the vision and the hope and Mm -hmm. can taste and feel it at the saddest times then You've, I guess you've always got that sense of momentum. Yeah. Yep. Um, and so when we're thinking about this, I guess, reform versus revolution, is it possible to switch between the two? Can I, can I push for bigger cages, for example, and then one day with my supporters decide to switch on, you know, we're, we're, we're putting our feet down now. We've made some progress. It's time for absolute change. 
Yeah, I think it definitely is. And I think when we as academics create these sort of very neat factions within the movement, um, people don't necessarily fit neatly within those categories. So again, a common one in the animal movement, I think definitely other movements as well, where someone has a radical ideology. So ideologically, they'd be aligned with a radical faction, but in their um, practice, they'd be more in the reformist element, for example. So um, I guess a, a case in that in the animal movement would be PETA, for example, are very radical views towards animals. Their slogan is animals are not ours, as in, you know, we shouldn't be using animals for our own ends in the, fir- in the first place. But they've also given um, slaughterhouse designers awards for designing more humane slaughterhouses. And they've worked with KFC to get um yeah more humanely slaughtered chickens and those kind of things so i think definitely um we can change over time but also yeah a lot of activists don't necessarily neatly fit within those an example i gave um in in an article i wrote in the campaign against live animal export was where someone actually put in um like non-halal meat that the animals ate who are going for live animal export so that 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 animal could no longer be exported because they're like their meat wasn't halal because they'd eaten the non-halal meat. And there's so much going on there because I, I see that as a fairly moderate campaign, the campaign against live animal export, because it's more about, it's not saying let's stop slaughtering animals, saying let's let's stop slaughtering animals in those countries and let's do it in Australia instead. So I'd say overall it's quite a moderate campaign, but the action itself is quite radical in that it's a illegal direct action, like breaking into that place and, and feeding the animal without any permission or anything. So it's sort of, it sort of draws on direct action, which is kind of more the radical flank of the movement. And the fact that they're actually feeding the animal meat is like using animal products, which kind of puts it back in the moderate thing. So often even one individual action, there's so many different factions we could place that person in. So I think they're, they're useful to like understand movements, these factions, but also we definitely have to acknowledge activists don't necessarily neatly fit in them. And as you say, it can change over time and individuals can yeah, be in different places philosophically, practically, etc. How do you take a stand? How do you... Because taking a stand is what attracts people to a cause, right? When it feels like you're making a decisive point that either I support or don't support. So when you're going for that more... I guess, progressive or gradual change mm-hmm. versus radical action. How do you get people to come to your cause when you're taking that softly, softly approach? Yeah, I think it's a matter of, I think, viewing activism in as broad a sense as possible. And that's certainly something I've heard at a lot of uh, activist conferences as well as academic conferences of, I guess, defining activist as anyone trying to make change on an issue, which I think would include just about everyone. So I think often we, when we think of activism, we think of it in a very specific way. So maybe someone going to a protest or doing a street store and obviously all that stuff is activism and it's totally up to people where they want to act, identify as an activist that's, that's up to them and there is stigma etc but I think in social movements I think for me like I, I define activism again as anyone wanting to make change so that could be things like um, posting about a certain cause on social media that could be being about like care for where they spend their money like boycotting unethical companies or products I'd obviously could involve the more traditional things like 
protest, direct action, street stores, etc. But I think, yeah, making it as broad as possible. I think that's also really important in terms of uh, considering things like ableism. Like, so if we think about, oh, we're all going to go for a march and anyone who doesn't go on this march doesn't support animals or whatever the cause may be, um, we might be excluding people who might not be able, for whatever reason, be physically capable of, of going on that march. So I think it is about having as many tactics as possible that bring in as broad range of people with different abilities, different, um, yeah, different capacities. Certainly I know, yeah, people with social anxiety, for example, might not feel comfortable in like a quite a chaotic protest environment, but they might feel more comfortable about debating issues online, trying to change minds online, those kind of things as well. So I think it's about like not dismissing any one tactic, but having, yeah, the full range of tactics as a social movement. There's a interesting movement in the tech world where people are designing for inclusion from the ground up. So instead of thinking about we've got a protest but we also need something for these people, they think fundamentally about, all right, if we're designing for someone who has social anxiety and mm. is in a wheelchair and is vision impaired, what kind of things can we do for them? And what you end up with is these hyper-accessible platforms or mm. um, events that mm. anyone can come to. And I think, I don't know, I th- I always like to look outside social movements for yep. things that you can bring back in because uh, I guess that's how we come up with innovative ideas. Yeah, definitely. And I think even I, you mentioned before that you did comedy years ago. And I think even things like comedy, I think we can definitely bring into social movements. So, um, yeah, looking at um, protests, uh, there's been recent protests in Melbourne around blockade Iermark and people yelling at the mining executives, that kind of thing. And obviously, I, I, I understand that anger and that the importance of um, challenging these companies who are destroying the environment. But also, it makes me think about other ways we could go about our actions as well that might be more appealing and bring more people in so there's a, a group called the yes men i don't know if you've come across them at all you have yeah, yeah, I've, yeah. I've read about some yeah so i really encourage people to watch their documentaries i watched uh, their most recent one recently but yeah i just think they have really creative ways of sort of using humor and parody which i think might appeal to people who might uh, be less like the these sort of like ang- scenes of angry protesters appeal to some people but some people might be like no that's not my scene but this idea of parody where they impersonate business leaders and politicians and that kind of thing I think that could reach a whole new person and also bring this in this idea that activist movements can be fun and can be exciting and can be funny I think that would reach in whole new people whole new audience as well one of their act- actions particularly I thought was really creative was uh, during the Occupy movement back in the sort of mid mid uh, 2010s uh, they dressed up as like corporate corporate executives and they sort of had science well they didn't have science they're just walking along with this march and all wearing suits and that kind of thing as if they were sort of like bankers for Occupy and then all these police came behind them to sort of just to supervise the march and then <laughs> while they're already marching they pulled out this sign which they hadn't had before and it was something like bankers and police for the Occupy movement and <laughs> yes. all, all, all the police are like behind them going like, like what do we do like we're already here and they're, they're, they're marching behind this banner saying like bankers and police for the Occupy movement I thought that was just such a like that that to me is something like that's really attractive like that kind of thing I really want to get involved this movement I think using thinking outside the box rather than I'm pissed off about an issue we're going to march around the block like not to say that's not a valid tactic and it can't be useful but there's so many different things within our toolbox as activists I think we should really consider the wide range yeah I think that reframing is something that comedians well it's funny you mention it uh, (laughs) are really good at doing I was talking the other day about um creating the tension for people to understand or for people to engage in an issue, right, where we are and where we need to be. And comedians are really good at talking about where we are 
And that's because they look at these issues from other people's perspectives. Yep. There's this famous bit by um, notorious sex pest Louis C.K. Mm. where he talks about eating bad plain food, right, which mm. is like a hack topic. Mm. But there's a saying in comedy that there's no hack topics, just hack comedians. And he talks about this idea of complaining about your food whilst you're whatever, 10,000 feet in the air. Yeah, and all of a sudden yeah. it's this outsider's perspective where you see yourself sitting in the seat complaining about how the potatoes aren't hot enough but you also see the irony of the situation and all of a sudden he's opened, yeah, opened the eyes to this reality that we all know by taking an outsider's perspective and that's comedians, if you can think about who are the people I need to appeal to and maybe even just what are their biggest concerns or bugbears or, you know, what are the... Um, what are the important things in their life and how would they look at this mm. issue? That's a really good way to start to make things entertaining or at least make them accessible. Yeah, and, and I think that for me, like comedy can be part of activism as well. And I, I think that that is that sort of um, mistake that I see in social movements of maybe you're a comedian, for example, and you're like, you know, walking around a block holding signs and yelling doesn't appeal to me, therefore I'm not an activist. And it's like, no, your activism can be your comedy. That doesn't mean you can't also talk about plain food or whatever. It doesn't, doesn't all have to be political, but I think comedy can be a really good space. I think people in a way let their guard down, right? Because entertainment, it's funny. and But also a lot of comedians do a really good job at also get encouraging people to think about important social justice issues as well within their comedy so i think like whatever that looks to looks like to you that could be comedy it could be art it could be a number of things and i think yeah social movements rather than going you're not doing the proper thing you're not doing the march around the block you're not sitting on a street stall therefore you're not a part of this movement it's like we need all all these different things working together and i think that is one important thing for social movements well i think the disarming thing as well just to go back to comedians is that they're really good at talking about this is where we are right now. Mm. But what they don't do is talk about this is where you need to be. If mm. you've ever heard a comedian tell you how you need to live your life, mm. it's really jarring. Mm. It feels really, excuse me, feels really preachy. Yeah. And so being able to kind of step back from your ego and your mm. superior perspective because mm. you see the world in a certain way yeah. and only tell people the kind of entertaining version of where we are and let them make their own mind up mm. about what you're insinuating about where we need to be. Yeah. Is a yeah, like you say, an accessible way. It's yeah. funny, just you at you at university heard whatever punk music and started to engage more in, I guess, the study and the marches. I was talking about war in Iraq and George Bush in my first ever stand-up comedy gig at eighteen. So yeah, yeah, I needed yeah. the diligent thing. Yeah, <laughs> I thought I could tell jokes to change the world. Yeah, yeah, and I think also as like individuals, we don't have to do everything. So I think again, if you're a comedian and you're not necessarily going, as you say, I'm not sure how this would be a bit, but like there's a march at twelve p.m. Monday. Please show up at, at the art center. Like that's not exactly going to be funny materials, as you say. It's not so much about pointing to where we want to be. Although maybe some comedians could possibly go down the road. But I understand. But I think even just asking questions and even if it's done in a in humorous way, I think comedians often just um, question the way things are. And I think that is a really important. And again, for me, it was more punk music. But um, yeah, just to question the way things are. And that can be a starting point towards getting involved and actually trying to change the way things are as well. I think there's also a lot to be said for seeing the broader cultural system and working out where are my strengths and where can I play in a way that is impactful versus just doing the thing that other people have asked me to do because we can all contribute mm. but we've also got our own strengths that we can bring to the table. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Oh no, and I, I think also I remember reading an article sort of about not not again not so much criticizing marches, but more just saying that people know what a march is, right? It's not like at one point, I think it was in, in the 60s civil rights movement, they mentioned a, a big protest where it was like covered live on TV. It was like such a big deal. Whereas now it's like, it's kind of just par for course, right? And, and again, it is still a good way to bring a large number of people together, et cetera. Um, but this idea of like, in a way, it has maybe lost some of its more like shocking or powerful elements because it has been done for decades and decades. And I think, yeah, actions like the Yes Men, for example, and those kind of actions, not to do them instead of marching, but to complement these more traditional actions, I think can be really good to break the mould and get more interest. I think the creative approach as well to think about how do we summarise everything that we want to say in a sign or a piece of art? I think I, when, whenever I see the baby Trump, the inflatable baby Trump <laughs> yeah, in the yeah. UK, it's such a perfect articulation of the point that they're trying to make. And yeah, I think yeah. that, yeah, if you can take that step back and think about how do we not just arrive at this march and show yeah. our numbers but translate things in a you know cut through way yeah then that's how you start to get those memes that emerge from your march and then you get that newsworthiness yeah and and i think also i guess i've been speaking about these as like a dichotomy of like do we do a march or do we do more creative actions but again we can incorporate those creative elements into our marches as well i remember being at a march in perth and there was someone it was something around um like mining industry or something like that and someone rather than just sort of like having a very sort of earnest sign of like you know you're destroying the environment whatever they dressed up as a grim reaper and were kind of like pretending to be all i want like the death and that kind of thing and sort of like parodying what you're trying to oppose and sort of bringing in that sort of element of like theater and and comedy and parody and those kind of things to your march as well so i think we can definitely incorporate those creative ways into our marches as well and Getting back to what we were talking about before, I imagine those new and novel opportunities are a nice way to bring together the different factions of, you know, radical versus um, reform. Yeah, I, I think so. People. Yeah, it's sort of like we're, we're all enjoying this entertainment and kind of thinking outside the box and doing something different rather than like that's not my my part of the movement, therefore I, I'm against it and kind of, yeah, I guess in a way it creates a bit of a, a spectacle and it comes more about the spectacle more than the ideology, even though you're obviously trying to advocate an ideology behind that. So where do you stand on that then when, you know, is it disingenuous that I want to go to a march because I've come up with a funny sign? Is that, should I be slapping myself on the wrist or should I be pulling out the paints and getting stuck in? I, I think I, I, I do and I'm uh, slightly or I'm not slight I'm older than obviously a lot of the, the school uh, school strike for climate people. I've I've been involved in a bunch of those marches or just like gone along to those marches. And yeah, I think a cynical older person part of me is like, are you just coming along to have your sign and share it on social media? Like that sort of um, performative nature of social media, I guess, of like, oh, I've got I've got a funny sign and I'm gonna go to the protest and share it on social media. Um, but I always I try and I almost immediately break out of that because I also think well I think like those kind of things when they are shared on social media probably are reaching that generation and might be more appealing than me getting up and giving a lecture on the importance of climate change for example so I think yeah a funny slogan I was going to say a Simpsons reference but that's really old but I'm still seeing the Simpsons reference going strong at these protests but yeah some kind of like funny slogan um, that might appeal to their demographic I think could actually be quite useful in getting younger people active in climate change and again bringing that sort of fun and humour and that kind of thing so again I think I do occasionally 
occasionally had that more uh, old man cynical reaction, but I, I definitely come out the side of, I think these are actually positive things bringing in humour to marches. I guess we'll see how long it lasts. I'm sure there'll <laughs> become a point where people will be out of catchy slogans and witty puns. Yeah, I, I and guess. And we'll, then that'll separate <laughs> the true believers from yeah. the enthusiasts. So we talked reform and revolt, or revolution rather, mm-hmm. um, are two potential ways to go. Do I need to decide at the outset which one I'm going for? Mm. And I, I apologise for not answering you when you asked me that half an hour ago, but um, I've got about other things. But yeah, there is a, a third a third way to go, which I think we can... It's not a matter of like replacing revolution or reform, but more like a third way that we can add to social movements. A bit like how, you know, again, we don't have to do like a yes men stunt or parody or humor instead of a march and a petition, we can do it as well. And so this this third approach, uh, me and again, my colleague, Teresa Betray have referred to as non-hegemonic, which is a bit of a big word. And I know you're talking about coming up with a better word, but maybe <laughs> I, I was thinking maybe in a way withdrawal might, might sort of sum up what I'm saying here. So basically, Basically, what I'm talking about here is that um, getting back to those examples I gave in the indigenous rights movement, so um, reform would be constitutional recognition, sort of tweaking the existing structures. Um, A more radical way to go would be um, a treaty, for example. And what they, even though they're different, what they share is they're both engaging with the state. They're both mainly focused on the state. And what um, me and Teresa are interested in this third way, which actually is more about withdrawing from these institutions rather than either sort of tackling them head on and sort of having a radical approach or even reforming them. So uh, in the context of Indigenous rights, um, Teresa writes a lot about um, Indigenous communities living as though they're separate from the state. Obviously, technically, they are still very much under the control of the Australian state, but rather than calling for constitutional recognition or treaty, they're just getting on and doing their own thing within the communities in a in an autonomous kind of self-led, self-determination kind of way. And that's not to say individuals within those communities might either support both treaty and or constitutional recognition, but it's about that third way of sort of imagining this world we want to see. So it's within the existing world, but sort of creating that world right now. And in the context of animal movements, we might have reforms, like I mentioned, bigger cages, free-range eggs, etc. Or we might have really radical actions which tackle the power holders head-on. So this might be, for example, be like direct actions, um, investigations, etc., where people break into facilities using animals, for example. But what I'm particularly interested in is this third way, which is um, veganism as a practice on the individual level and also veganism as a tactic, like encouraging other people to go vegan in that, in a way, it's not too much of a challenge because I guess in some ways it's some even less of a challenge than welfare reform because with veganism we have sort of a small number of people withdrawing from these industries but otherwise these in otherwise these industries can just tick on as they've been going they don't have to change their practices they don't have to make their cages bigger they have to reform their practices and it's certainly i'd say less of a threat than direct action activists who actually break into these facilities etc but i do see it as really promising a little bit similar to indigenous self-determination of creating that world we want to see so as vegans and i'm a vegan myself but it's it's about um creating that world we want and also sort of living as an example of that so we want this this utopia of animals not being exploited and slaughtered anymore so it's about like living that 
uh, on the individual level within this existing society and creating that world we want to see just as indigenous people wanting to live without being controlled by the colonial Australian state are kind of living that practice within the existing society so that is what both me and Tracer I guess are particular not to say we necessarily reject the other elements but more they're the elements of social movements we're particularly interested in and excited by. That is a really interesting, I guess, when we talked before about the barriers to engagement, mm. that feels like a, you know, that's got a lot of pull to it, mm. right? Yeah. Come and live this life that mm. is a manifestation of your beliefs. Yeah. But also that's a big bridge to, or gap to broach rather, to, you know, I guess that's, and I guess that's why we end up with people who push back against veganism because that idea of actually engaging with those those values or those lifestyles seems a long way from where we are so mm. how do we how do we grow the movement when what we're doing is whatever building a tiny community of believers yeah yeah i think that doers, doers. Yeah, yeah 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 i think that is tough and i think that is the um that is the that is the big question in social movements of yeah even looking at organizations like do we promote say veganism or do we encourage people to buy free range eggs or or more likely do we encourage people to sign a petition opposing seal clubbing in canada for example so i think yeah veganism is limited in a number of ways i think one of the ways is that organizations particularly bigger organizations are less likely to promote it for exactly the reasons you mentioned you're asking people to do more than say make a donation to an organization so they can um, oppose dog slaughter in china or signing a petition um, for canada to stop their clubbing of seals or whatever so as you say it's all about doing on the individual level and there's something which I called in my thesis a little effort paradigm, which is basically the less you ask people to do, the more people will do it. And I guess the more the more you ask of people, the less people will do that. So I think, yeah, that is definitely a barrier to uh, vegan activism. And I think it definitely goes a long way to explain why we do definitely get vegan activism at the grassroots, but the larger organizations are generally more about pointing the figure at what other people and often other countries are doing rather than actually encouraging people to make changes to their own consumption. So if... If that idea of, um, you know, living that life almost separate, making those individual decisions is the, uh, you know, is the third way to run a movement, how do you bring people slowly into that world? Yeah, I mean, I think it's about, um, yeah, sometimes gradual changes can be quite useful in that regard. Uh, I remember hearing uh, a, a case study from someone who's involved with vegan outreach. They're an organization who, who is focused on that. As you say, vegan outreach, like encouraging people to go vegan. They'll often be handing out vegan flyers at universities and those kind of places. And there, there was some study, I can't remember the specifics of, but it was something like if you have, they, they've done a study where they're like, can you have this little sticker to promote this particular cause? And generally people are likely to do that. And then if you can come back a few weeks later saying, can you ha hang this banner? Do you know, are you familiar with this one? Or yeah, no? yeah, yeah. Okay. People become more and more likely to yeah. commit because it's part of their identity. Exactly, already. yeah. So I, I even found that just on a really trivial individual level. I used to work at the library back at my old university in Perth and I do a lot of walking or getting lifts up and downstairs. I kind of decided... If, if it's just one flight of stairs, I'll, I'll walk it. And then, then it became two and then I just walked up whenever I didn't have a trolley load of books. Um, and so that sort of small change led to bigger changes. And so I think it is a matter of, um, yeah, I guess promoting that vegan message, but also 
encouraging any kind of step in that direction as well so encourage people to go like, oh let's just try like a step in this direction might be for example switching over cow's milk to soy milk or almond milk or like finding a non-dairy milk you like for example so always trying to like push that bar towards veganism but celebrating and encouraging steps anyway along that journey i think there's a really interesting um kind of there's horizons of change in this in the discussion around veganism and I think we're definitely at that first horizon where people are buying buying the vegan prawns or whatever or the vegan duck and then discussing out of curiosity right people are open enough and then having that discussion oh you know it actually tastes exactly like duck or it's got the same texture as prawns or chicken or whatever yeah yeah I feel like that is the first horizon and yeah we can start to normalise those conversations. Eventually we get to the point where people don't discern between the two and then eventually I think the third horizon is when restaurateurs stop trying to make food the same texture as meat and they can actually just make it, like, optimise it for taste or mm-hmm. experience. So I think yeah. in that mainstream dialogue we can start to see the different ways that it evolves yeah and i think even someone having just trying a mock meat or as you say doesn't have to be a mock meat just that some kind of a vegan meal again i think the idea of like you know even moving away from this idea like i have to have meat or i won't be full and those kind of things like breaking down those barriers even if the person isn't going vegan directly after that meal i think can be good steps in that direction what are the other barriers if you're in this um what was the word you used uh the withdrawal Mm. style of movement then what are the barriers to growing beyond just attracting people that i guess you've got that chasm of where people are and where you want them to be but you know in terms of fundraising building support um aligning with other organizations or companies yeah what are some of the other blockers and what why do they exist? Yeah, I, I think that is a huge barrier. So if we think about organisations, so animal activism organisations mainly get their money from the public, right? So again, there are like RSPCA gets some government funding, for example, but on the whole, the mainly support is and occasionally corporate funding, for example, for large groups. But most of the funding for most animal groups comes from the public. So you think about um, getting back to my examples before, Let's say, let's take um, dog slaughter in China, for example. So if an organization says, we want you to give us money to stop people in China consuming dogs, that's going to have fairly broad appeal in Australian society, I would argue. On, in the contrast, if you're saying to someone who isn't vegan themselves, you're saying, we want you to give us money to convince you to go vegan that is much like less of a big a big sell. Like we're saying like we're, we're giving you, you know, you want, we want you to give us money to, to advocate something that you may, may or may not support philosophically, but either way are not doing practically. So I think that, yeah, it definitely is always going to be limited because of those financial kind of considerations in terms of with veganism specifically who it's going to reach. Um, but I think generally, again, whether it is veganism, whether it is uh, indigenous communities living in an um, autonomous kind of way, I think, it, yeah, again, it may not be the most uh, economically viable option. And again, I think these these sort of um, utopias and, and withdrawal and imagining the world we want to see, again, I, 
I think because of all these limitations, it's not necessarily like let's only do this in social movement. It's more like let's make this a part of uh, of social movements and still have the other elements as well. But yeah, I think because it is kind of appealing and it is positive, I think it can bring people in. And uh, definitely one journalist I follow a lot is Naomi Klein and she's written a book on Trump recently, Donald Trump, uh, called No Is Not Enough and talking about the way in which we often come together as social movements to oppose things. So let's have all these groups come together, environmental, human rights, feminists, let's come together and let's like oppose this war. Let's oppose Donald Trump. Let's oppose this trade agreement. Let's oppose neoliberal capitalism, whatever it may be. But often what we don't have is these movements coming together and even movements themselves are actually going like, what are we for? And I think that can be really appealing, not just what are we against, but what do we want to create and what are we for? So I think they do, even though economic they're maybe less viable i think that can be appealing to people that positive element that's an interesting perspective that what are we against what are we for because obviously yeah like like you said people are more inspired to fight the man Mm -hmm. than they are to understand the man or (laughs) to live life without the man yeah 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 um and so is there a point when you know a movement should switch that dialogue or should we start with the positive um, ideals or vision and then you know maybe our second third tier of messaging is about what we're fighting against yeah i, I would love to see more of a focus on what we're fighting for uh, again not to say that we shouldn't protest whatever it is um environmentally destructive um companies or companies that harm animals or whatever social movement we're focused on but yeah i would love to see more of that focus on Again, what what are we for in social movements? What 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 are we for? What do we want to create as well as yeah, what what are we opposing as well? And to give one example of that again from Naomi Klein, um, she was talking about the um, protests against the tar sands um, pipeline in in the US and. Yeah, the idea that she was sort of argued that the activists there sort of lost the battle but may have won the war because they weren't able to stop the pipeline. But in those different groups coming together, a lot of non-Indigenous people learned about Indigenous ways of relating to nature and these kind of more positive, creative, constructive things. And so, yeah, again, even though they didn't kind of win that specific battle that that specific campaign there was so much sort of generative there was so much that was created in that so i think when we are you know focusing on we're opposing this thing even if we do lose that one campaign if we have that more creative thing and building social movements building knowledge uh building behavior change all these things then we can get um, positives out of them as well so that idea of building and making that progress and maybe yeah seeing the bigger picture seeing the forest for the trees Mm. i don't even know if that's the right analogy (laughs) to use but when you talk about that withdrawal or that non-hegemonic uh approach surely if that builds and grows what you're trying to do is build that into mainstream culture and society and then that obviously starts to um, that changes the the power, right? Mm-hmm. If you can grow it enough, then society's values adapt, policies, laws adapt. Yeah, yeah. Um, is that should that be the goal of these um, movements? Is to have this exemplar of the life we want to live mm. and turn it into a gravitational 
force and just pull more and more people into it is the deal. Is that the goal? Yeah, I mean, I, I think different people within these, like these, or this sort of faction within social movement would have different, um, yeah, different views on that. But I think, yeah, it doesn't have to be exclusive to the other ones. So, for example, one um, one theorist I've followed a lot in animal rights is Gary Francione, who's a lawyer who writes a lot about animals and, and he's focused a lot on veganism because he argues at the moment, like, I guess the law is quite conservative and it tends to more sort of follow society rather than lead society. So he sort of argues that in a society that doesn't value animals enough, we won't actually have laws. So he's sort of almost given up on the law um, and advocates for veganism instead. But at the same time, he argues if we did have that massive um, change in attitudes and change in behaviours, then down the track we could have meaningful gains for animals in the law. And, and I guess to give the Indigenous rights example, I guess if we did have more um, of these Indigenous communities living autonomously and showing this example, that could theoretically lead to changes in policy, more uh, respect and acknowledgement towards Indigenous Australians and these kind of issues as well. So, yeah, I think that it's... Yeah, I think it can be really powerful in its own right of showing that that world that we want, but I think there's no reason why it can't flow on to changes in laws and changes in broader society as well. Just on that, if these if the groups that are pushing for change are such a small part, you know, they are they build they get their strength from being in the minority, then why is it that so many social movements push for change in policy and change in laws? If if those laws aren't going to change until there's a cultural shift, why mm. is it such a popular, um, I guess, roadmap? Yeah, I, I think that gets back to tactics because there are other, other lawyers who see things quite differently. So other, other lawyers are more going down the road of when it comes to animals of starting with the law but starting for anim- with animals who are more maybe valued by society already. So they're trying to get uh, significant animal rights laws for like primates, for example. So animals that are kind of already given a higher position. And so sort of their approach of rather than changing society than changing laws is kind of, I guess, in a way like working down the hierarchy of animals. So starting off with those who are, again, already valued. So primates, elephants, maybe these kind of animals. And then maybe at some point that will get down to people or whoever who is who is uh, species who are less valued by society. So, yeah, I, th- I think policy um, does have a um, yeah does have a role to play, and, and there certainly are others who argue that we can make legal changes like right now as well. Uh, but yeah, it kind of depends which way we which way we're going to do things first or second. But again, I think we can do all of these things at once. Again, not not any one individual has to do everything within a social movement. So I think we can have lawyers, um, yeah, making the change for the changes that we can get within the current society while we can also have other people who aren't focused on that at all but are more about, yeah, creating this new society we want to see and, and hopefully influencing the broader society as well. It's a really uh, inspiring idea and it's almost by giving it a name and pointing out what this thing is, it starts to feel like a really powerful lever for change. Um, What do you see or what advice would you give to people who think that this kind of withdrawal tactic might be something that they can employ? 
Yeah, I think it is really good and certainly um, something myself or as someone who is an academic but has had a lot of experience as an activist as well, I definitely agree with that sort of excitement about this positive and I, I guess about um, advocating for what you actually believe in. And I think one of your, I believe your very first episode was talking about uh, when you're speaking to the media, if you don't believe what you're saying, that's going to come across on the TV or whatever. And I've gone from um, starting off as an animal activist, my very first campaign um, was advocating people to eat free range meat for example and that was something I didn't really believe in like I wasn't eating meat at all myself at the time but it was sort of the idea of we have to be strategic and not ask people to to do too much and all those kind of things uh, but when I shifted in my own activism to actually talk about like what I believe in what I practice as veganism and talk about that I felt like I was a much better um, communicator because it was it was genuine it wasn't well I actually believe this one thing I'm not going to say this thing to be strategic and reach more people so often I think a lot of the discussion around effective activism and strategic activism equates that with moderate activism not asking too much uh, but I actually find that sometimes moderate activism activists are kind of speaking out of both sides of their mouths and they're not actually talking about what they want and that kind of thing so yeah I certainly think this idea of advocating um, for the world that you want uh, being genuine being honest whether this is a sort of a, a withdrawal or it's a more radical aspect of the movement or whatever I, I personally think that that can be more effective, more engaging and can speak to more people and, and invite people more in because you do have that genuine enthusiasm for what you're talking about. Okay, so to extract what you said, mm. live the life, live the ideals and articulate that stuff mm. is a powerful way to build these movements. Yeah, I think so, a more inviting way, yeah. And so what else, like... I'm going to sit down with the first 50 people who are behind my cause. We're going to talk about a better way to live, an ideal society. And, you know, a lot of, a lot of these groups spend a lot of time talking about the way things should be. Mm -hmm. um, how do we turn those ideals into action? Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, I think, I, I guess with veganism specifically, and obviously veganism isn't, the only form there's so many other important issues and there's other issues affecting animals etc but i think with veganism specifically i guess what i do is try and not actually talk to people too much and more just live that thing and i um yeah i play ice hockey i play squash and i just live a very active lifestyle and i do that without eating any animal products and i guess more just living that and i find just by living that often i've had friends who have gone vegan who've never i've never spoken to about veganism but they kind of they care about animals and don't want to consume them but think they have to and I guess just by living that example that we don't have to or at least I don't have to in my circumstance, um, people might follow along as well or might ask questions to get interested. So yeah, I think with, with veganism specifically, I think it's more about like living what you want to see and I think that would apply to a lot of other uh, social movements when you're trying to create this alternative world of just like living that, putting that into practice in your own life and I think if you're happy about that, enthusiastic, about that i think others will become interested and, and may follow along as well they do say that uh the life we live is the lesson to those around us where does that leave militant vegans who can't endure a dinner without talking about how people should change their lives because obviously it's a big lifestyle change mm -hmm. right maybe it doesn't seem it from the inside out but yeah. you're making very big decisions mm -hmm. and at some point you need to validate that to yourself is it possible to validate your position to yourself without telling other people about it because i know that the vegan 
uh, lifestyle has been rebranded as a plant-based lifestyle because of the negative associations mm-hmm. with militant vegans. Yeah, yeah. I probably, I don't know, I might be classified on that militant vegan. I'm, <laughs> I'm not too sure, but uh, I mean, it's something I feel strongly about. But I mean, yeah, yeah, I think that, as you say, I think that we spoke about comedy letting their guard down. And I think certainly, as you say, eating a dinner yeah, while people are actually eating animal products is probably not a good time to talk about veganism. Um, but yeah, I think it is a matter of, yeah, I think if, if it is, regardless of the issue, when it, when it feels like someone is uh, preaching and just kind of like trying to impose their view on um, on someone else, that is when the guard comes up, unlike with comedy when the guard is often down. So I think it's just a matter of having, uh, yeah, having genuine conversations about people, whatever the issue is, veganism, I think that is where the... Uh, where the, the change is much more likely to come, just having genu- genuine conversations with friends about topics and, and you stating your views um, rather than sort of going into that dinner or that social situation going, I really want this person to have this view at the end of this, of just being genuine, being honest about, um, yeah, how you feel. It's really nice to hear that you say that, that kind of, um, you know, to take that approach. And it's, it becomes an interesting challenge, I think, for people who are, you know, pursuing that withdrawal. That sounds so bad, doesn't it? I'm pursuing yeah. a withdrawal lifestyle. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> but, you know, who are, who are living in that better world, you know. It's mm-hmm. a better world that I've created. And to think about more effective ways to communicate that with mm-hmm. people I think is a great piece of advice for anyone trying to embark on that. Yeah, and I do think on a, just to link it back to some of our previous discussions, I think uh, a vegan comedian I, I really like is Mike Kaplan with a M-Y-Q is, is how it's spelt, but he's a vegan comedian, but most of what he talk about isn't vegan veganism. And when he does talk about vegan, he's quite self-deprecating and has a self, sense of humor about it. And I think that, again, is going to be a lot more appealing as well. So again, I think being, uh, being positive about it, having a sense of humor about it, I think is, is going to be a lot more appealing. And I think... Look, it's a um, it's a really interesting and positive and exciting way to think about social change. Obviously, the revolution and the reform are still super important uh, strategies to employ. And I think that, you know, for people who are listening who are thinking about, you know, should we go this way or that way, if you can have the discussions around these things and start to see where the energy of your group is, then that's a really nice way to decide how do we want to do these? Um, how do we want to, I don't know, advance our cause? Exactly, yeah. And I think, again, even maybe incorporating that third way into our revolution or reform as well, I think is another way to go as well. But I think it is a yeah, really exciting part of social movements that we can incorporate. All right. Well, look, uh, can people get in touch with you if they want? Can people tweet you or anything if they want to discuss this yeah. further or do they need to enroll in your university? <laughs> no, no. I mean, I can, if you want, you can put a link to my uh, conversation. But I've been meaning to set up an academic Twitter. But I, um, yeah, you can link to my conversation page or search my name on theconversation.com and people are very welcome to email me with any questions or like chat about anything for sure. Great. All right. Well, I'll post that link. Um, Nick? Thank you so much for this. I think this is a bit of a, you know, the world shifts a little bit when you start to see completely new opportunities. And I think that's what you've done for me and hopefully for the people listening. So thank you very much for your time. Thanks. I've really enjoyed it too. And hopefully people have got something out of it. Uh, That's all we've got time for. I'm Rich Brophy. This has been How to Start a Riot. I will see you guys later.